0: you'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.
1: Listener
2: supported. WNYC Studios.
0: Welcome to America, where if you're any kind of different that they don't agree
3: with, you don't get rights at all. A procedure that should only be between the minor, their doctor, and the parent is now being controlled by the government. Transphobia is very scary. As a parent of not one, but two trans children, I am terrified. I never post videos of my kids because transphobia is scary.
2: Transgenderism must be eradicated from public life in hot
4: To my friends and family that like to tell me, I want to see it from both sides. This is the other side, complete eradication. We call that genocide in history. Thank you. It is
5: our job to not let this happen. So get your friends to vote. Organize protests across the country. I will make videos on it. Please stay.
3: It's hard, but please stay.
6: It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and welcome to the show. My first real full-time job as a reporter was at an LGBT community newspaper back in the mid-1990s. That is a lifetime ago on just about any political issue, but truly on some of the debates I was covering then. There was one really big story in particular back then that seems like a report from Mars today. The idea that you could get therapy to make yourself properly heterosexual. Gay conversion therapy, as it was called, has been well and truly discredited, and few well-meaning people would today suggest that my therapist should try convincing me that I'm actually straight. But conversion therapy remains very much alive when it comes to transgender people. And moreover, if you want to understand why there's an eruption of bills targeting transgender people in state legislatures around the country, you have to understand the history of this particular idea. This week, we're going to talk about that history and where it fits in the ideology of the Christian nationalist movement. And we're going to check in with an advocate in Tennessee who's been working with families affected by that state's new law banning gender-affirming care for minors. I'm joined first by Amara Jones. She's the founder of TransLash Media and host of their podcast, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality. Season two of the podcast launches later this month, and it begins with a deep dive into the history of conversion therapy. And Amara,
1: it is nice to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. I think it was two years ago when we were talking about this. About the very, this thing. very
6: thing, and you were predicting exactly <laughs> where we're at. Um, so... You did. You, you begin this season, this new season of your podcast, with, you know, this deep dive from decades in the past talking about the history of conversion therapy. Why, why start there?
1: It's important because the entire predicate on the these bills is that transness is not a real thing. It's a made-up thing. And that's not an idea that's actually shared by the medical or the psychological community. It's, ma- it's literally a made-up notion. And so we began looking at, well, where does the idea of anything related to transness or sexual orientation come up first as a made-up idea? And when we dug into it, it was um, due to the entire conversation around conversion therapy. And I think that we have to understand that conversion therapy would have died out in the 1980s were it not for essentially one man. And that's James Dobson, who ran the Family Research Council, who single-handedly found a way to not only maintain the idea, but set up a network of thousands of therapists who would work alongside of him, driven by religious ideology to maintain it. And everything that they did to maintain conversion therapy, setting up pseudoscientific groups and finding, quote, ex-gays, all of whom now have renounced that, was essentially the road test for everything they had done on essentially transness as something that is real or not. Um, and so, in order to understand how this conversation, where this notion came from, how the conversation has been maintained, and how they've essentially successfully run this disinformation campaign against trans people, which became the predicate for these bills, you've got to understand what happened with conversion therapy.
6: And when and when and how did that pivot happen to saying, okay, well, we're going to we're going to focus this on trans people, the conversion therapy piece of it.
1: It really began, well, for the longest time, not surprising to anyone who is watching how the present conversation has somehow morphed into drag queens, right? Like there's this weird conglomeration of anything outside of the gender binary on the right. So for the longest time, transness was wrapped into their campaign against Um, gays and lesbians in particular and so for the longest time they just wrapped the whole notion Mm -hmm. of transness in with that and so conversion therapy was wrapped into that around the time of the 2009-ish period they began to understand that 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 uh, gays and lesbians were beginning to find wider acceptance in society. They kind of noticed it first around the "don't say," I'm sorry, "don't ask, don't tell" era, but really beginning in this 2008-ish, 9-ish mm-hmm. era. And so they began to understand pretty quickly that there was a possibility that they may lose this fight, and so they actually began to set up new pseudo scientific organizations focused on trans people during that time. So what's fascinating to everyone who says that the right wing is responding to trans visibility, what's fascinating is because they're such good at cultural listening, they've understood where the debate and the arguments were going even before people inside of the movement have understood that.
6: Long and long ago, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, you say in the podcast that we have to understand all of this when we start now hearing phrases like social contagion and indoctrination sessions. And so these are ideas that say, you know, that part of the growth in young people who are Uh, I don't don't even know if that's the right way to put it, but the argument is that there's a growing number of young people who are identifying uh, as trans or are exploring their gender journeys uh, and that it's a consequence of a contagion that is spreading socially. Um, You talked with a mother um, who really struggled with this idea when her daughter Mm -hmm. came out. Um uh-huh. and 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 I thought her story was really powerful. Um, can you just introduce uh-huh. us to that story quickly? Um, and 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 how how she came to this idea of social contagion?
1: Uh-huh. Now, for the full story, everyone will have to listen to the podcast. that <laughs> launches on March 31st, so we're not going to preview too much. But yes, what happened? What's so interesting about this family, Kai, is that this family is one where everyone essentially is deeply rational. If you were to look at them from the outside, they should be immune to these ideas. They're not religious. They are highly um, scientific and logical in nature and structure. Um, But they were pulled into these ideas because they have been made to sound as if they are grounded in some sort of science and logic because the right wing has set up an array of pseudoscientific organizations to peddle junk science. And so what was fascinating to me about this story is that You know, they pretty much understand, they meaning the Christian nationalist movement, understand that we live in a transphobic society and that transphobia is a default for so many people and so if you can begin to whitewash the notion of hate from transphobia you can actually make transphobia highly acceptable to people and that's essentially what happened in this family where they played on the discomfort that this this, um, mother had about their child being trans and through a series of conversations seeded um, on the internet and on a couple of sites in particular with these ideas essentially drew this parent into kind of a four-year, uh, stalling of, um, blocking the transition of, of their kid to really serious harm to that child and to their family.
6: And so the website in particular, um, there, there was a particular blog that really drew this person in and that has been mm-hmm. a, uh, a big player in drawing parents into this into this belief system right i mean th- how
1: how did that blog become such a big deal mhm so it's a it's a pariah i wish i wish we could refer to it in the past tense i wish we could say that it was the problem is that it still actively is essentially it it started out as a gathering place for parents who were trans-skeptical or out-and-out, um, hostile to their parents. And because the conversation in this site grew, it pulled in, it began to act as a center of gravity for Christian nationalist um, organizations and, and uh, movements, uh, fringe Jungian psychotherapists, uh, various people who are questioning transness overall, um, strange um, Strange sort of scientist who somehow used the conversation there to become even more prominent, and so it acted at this weird center of gravity. And so, it, it looks as if this this blog is natural and all the rest of it. But if you were to pull back, it looks as if the type of place that is sculptured, that is um, created to garner this type of conversation. And so what happens, as you know, is that once you have a site on the internet that acts as a center of gravity, that can pull in kind of this motley crew of conversations, it then acts as a nexus point for that to spread across the internet. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what happened. It acted as a place where parents and researchers and quotes were reinforced in their notions of the idea of transits as a social contagion and then where the idea of transits as a social contagion began to spread
6: yeah. she said to you the mother said to you as almost as an aside and we've got about a minute before i have to go on break but she said that mm. um you know they call it transphobia for a reason um what do you think she meant by that
1: i think she meant that um You know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And that no matter how whitewashed, how reasonable, how detached um, transphobia may sound, it's still transphobia. And so if someone tells you that your child um, is trans, uh, but you know, you have someone present to you this idea of quote, watchful waiting, which is one of their concepts, that that's actually a transphobic idea. Because if someone, if a medical professional came to you and said that your child had some other type of um, condition that needed to be addressed, addressed through some type of therapeutic moves, you wouldn't wait, you would move. And the only reason why you don't move on this is because transphobia is dressed up to look comfortable.
6: We have to take a break. Uh, Mar Jones will be back with us later in the hour uh, to talk more about the podcast, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, launching later this month. And listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Have you or your family been affected by the surge in legislation targeting transgender people or by the political interest in gender identities among young people in particular? Tell us how. Perhaps you're a parent, perhaps you're a transgender or gender non-conforming person. Maybe you're a care provider, an educator. How is this political moment affecting your life? We'll take your calls and continue the conversation after a short break.
3: Hi everyone, I'm Rahima and I help produce the show. So, we're planning an on-air celebration of Ramadan next week, kind of like how we've celebrated Yalda and Juneteenth in the past. And we need your help for this one. If you celebrate Ramadan, we want to know how it has changed over the years for you. Maybe there's a specific way you like to give back to your community during the month, or maybe you have kids now and you're figuring out how to make the holiday special for them. Whatever it is, we'd love for you to share it with us by sending us a voicemail, which we may play on the show. Here's how you do that. Just go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. Thank you and Ramadan Mubarak.
6: Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and this week we are talking about the surge in bills targeting transgender people in state legislatures around the country. Analysis from both civil rights groups and news organizations have found state lawmakers introducing record numbers of bills targeting transgender people in the last two legislative sessions. Youth are a particular focus of this legislation, and uh, NPR analysis this past November found that 86% of the bills in the past two years focused on trans youth. Tennessee is the latest state to make headlines in this movement. Governor Bill Lee signed a law earlier this month that will ban healthcare providers from giving gender-affirming care to minors. Tennessee is the fifth state to restrict health care in one way or another for transgender people, according to ACLU. And it's the first state to restrict drag performances in public places, though there are several similar bills making their way through other state legislatures. Before the break, I was speaking with Amara Jones, founder of TransLash Media, about the history behind this moment. She'll join us again later in the show, but for now, I want to turn to Tennessee in particular. Henry Seaton is the trans justice advocate at the ACLU of Tennessee, which is one of the civil rights groups that I believe have sued to challenge the state and the new law in Tennessee. He joins me now. Henry, thanks for coming on the show.
4: Yeah, thank you, Kai. I really appreciate it.
6: You guys have filed suit, right?
4: So we are preparing to file a suit at the moment, but we have uh, made a statement with the ACLU, like the national organization and mm-hmm. Lambda Legal as well, uh, gotcha. saying that we will be on the books with a lawsuit pretty soon. Gotcha.
6: So can you first just help people understand what this new law means for individual people in their lives? Like when it takes effect, um, what will it mean for transgender youth and their families?
4: Yeah, so I think one of the main sticking points about this piece of legislation that makes it so um, vile and hateful for a lot of people is the fact that if by March 31, 2024, you have not turned 18, uh, you will be required to detransition on that date, which means that even if you are already currently on any sort of puberty blocker or hormone therapy uh, before this law goes into effect in July, you will still be required to come off of it. So we've seen it already have major impacts where uh, children and teens and their families who do want to pursue this life-saving, medically necessary care uh, can't find a doctor willing to take in a new patient at the moment because of all the heat that's been brought around them. Um, And, It also just like really vilifies uh, the medical practice as a whole with its extreme statute of limitations, which can lead to like quite a brain drain uh, per se in Tennessee, whereas like doctors are seeing us just completely throw away their expertise and knowledge and say like, we're going to, Extra punish you for doing what is medically sound, right? right? right. So it's leading to a lot of doctors wanting to move away as well. Um, And again, the law hasn't even gone into effect yet. It goes into effect July one. A couple of other things that it does, and just just just
6: to underline though, I want to make sure I followed this to be clear. You know, because it's not we're not just saying that people, you know, in the future. Um, a 16 year old in the future who says to their parents, Hey, you know, I, I, I'm on a journey and I'm coming out to you as transgender. That person can't find care in the state of Tennessee in the future. It's not just that. It's somebody who has already, is already identifying as transgender, is already living yeah. as transgender, is already receiving treatment, will have to come off treatment uh, if they stay in the state of Tennessee. Yeah, that's correct. So, uh, and sorry, so you were about to say, I just want to make sure listeners caught that detail. So you were just about to say other things that it, that it's going to
4: do. Yeah, it's definitely a cynical piece that Tennessee is pretty unique in having, but other things that it does is, it's like pretty standard. I hate to say that because it's so popular, but it's pretty standard for other bills that we've seen around the nation that do this, where it's just a complete blanket ban on puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and any surgical procedure um, for Anyone under the age of 18, uh, the attorney general has up to 20 years to bring a suit against a healthcare provider, um, and a minor can sue the doctor that gave them uh, puberty blockers or hormone therapy up to 10 years after they turn 18. Hmm.
6: Listeners, if you or your family has been affected by this kind of legislation in your state, or if just the broader political moment in which this conversation is happening, in which transgender youth in particular are under such intense political scrutiny, if that's touched your life in any way, I'd love to hear from you. So that's the what what it would mean. We've talked about what it would mean for young people in the state of Tennessee. What what will it mean for transgender adults in in, in Tennessee? For, like for yourself, what what if anything will the restrictions say on these public drag performances
4: mean for you? Yeah. So I think um, the ban that uh, can restrict drag performances in the state of Tennessee is overly broad and vague in that. Uh, There's a lot of definitions in the Tennessee code that are just not given. For example, um, the phrase that catches eyes about that bill is male and female impersonator. That's actually been in the Tennessee code since the 1990s, but has never had a solid definition. So let's say, for example, um, a trans person who identifies as like a man or like me, for example, let's say that I'm a trans man um, and I go down the street and I'm wearing um, masculine clothing, but as someone who's like publicly and openly transgender, I can be seen as a male impersonator. Because I'm in public and on a sidewalk where kids could potentially see me, even if I'm in my own home and have a window open and someone sees me, uh, that could mean I could get charged with a... A class a misdemeanor or if i get a repeat offense it's a class e felony for repeat offenses yeah so it definitely along with other bills that we're seeing in the tennessee legislature one being um codifying the definition of sex in the senate code uh it definitely shows that they have a specific and strict angle towards the trans community and even with A healthcare ban for minors, they are forcing minors to go through physical changes that they don't want, and that will affect them into adulthood as well. If we are forcing people to go through a puberty that they do not align with or will bring them a lot of suffering, it will create permanent changes to their body regardless, right?
6: You you work with families affected by this, and I wonder how often you encounter well-meaning parents um who are genuinely struggling with their kids gender journeys and who hear about these laws and think well that makes sense to me um that's uh, parental rights that's parental oversight um what what do you or what would you say to those those parents
4: um yeah i think the major point i want to hit on is that The majority of major medical associations, whether it be the American Dermatology Association or the American Medical Association, all disagree with a blanket ban on gender-affirming care. I would also uh, heavily point to the fact that this is a very well-researched and long-term specific area of medicine and that listening to your doctors is imperative, right? Because any doctor who has a lot of knowledge but research in this area is able to give you the best advice moving forward. Um, but with the Tennessee legislature stepping in in this way, it kind of just completely blocks off any sort of parental right or choice or private decision that could be made between a child, their parent, and a medical professional because it just goes and steps in, in this huge government overreach move of just saying that Uh, even though we've been told time and again that this is very well medically researched, we're going to take away this option altogether. So I would say that this is a complete robbery of parental rights in a way, rather than something that gives those to a parent.
6: Let's hear from some callers. Let's go to Luke in upstate New York. Luke, welcome to the show.
7: Yeah, thanks for doing this. I just wanted to chime in here that my uh, child, who's a young adult, um, his life was probably saved, uh, and definitely his quality of life was really improved because of gender-affirming care. And the fact that people uh, in these legislatures, hate, you know, the rights of uh, these parents and these young people who are trying to figure out um, exactly how to live their best lives is, uh, it's anti-liberty. It's anti-American.
6: And, and how, how is this sort of political moment that we're hearing about? How is that impacting your son or yourself? Um, you're in upstate New York. This is not a state that has passed any of these laws, but you're living in this political moment.
7: Well, my son lives in another state now. Um, and there is no threat, uh, legislative threat against, him at this point um and probably won't be but uh you know he has friends who are impacted by this uh colleagues and the whole thing you know (laughs) what happens when you cross state lines what if you need to get a prescription filled at a pharmacy if you are working for a month or two someplace else it uh it's ridiculous and so we are in a safe space i guess but um, at what point do you, are, are no spaces safe? Yeah.
6: Thanks for calling, Luke. Uh, let's go to Lisa in Minnesota. Lisa, welcome to the show. Hey. Hello. I
5: just want to say thank you for, for bringing, bringing forward all these concerns from, from across the nation, because I think um, there's a lot of perspective to represent.
6: And, and how is it showing up in your life? Well, you know, living in Minnesota,
5: we think that we don't have, you know, lack of safety as trans families. Um, a 16-year-old that was assigned female at birth has been going through a transition, happily got onto testosterone and that's been very helpful, but inside of the journey, like we've had to change um care providers because um at the start of our journey there was um the the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Um took out one of our referral sources, and now, um, which is a major university medical system, has diverted all of the, the referrals to Mayo and to um, children's hospitals. And so, you know, it's like we've already got limits going on in our state, even though we're very much protected by our governor. You know, that doesn't mean yes. that healthcare care um, resources can't make those decisions too
6: yeah, there's an echo effect. Thank you for adding that to the conversation, Lisa. Let's let's do one more call, and then we'll we'll have you react to some of this, Henry. Uh, let's go to Annabelle in Pittsburgh. Annabelle, welcome to the show.
3: Hello, thank you. Um, just a, a quick side note. My name is Ann, an A N N O N. Oh, sorry. Um, but I just wanted to. No, it's all good. It's all good. It's kind of hard over the phone, but <laughs> I just wanted to put in my two cents as a non-binary and trans person who identifies as trans individual. Um, I'm 22. I'm soon to be graduating college. Um, I'm in a a program that looks at environmental sustainability. And I see this as a future where I could possibly travel a lot and be able to help a lot of people. But I also fear for um, my peers, people in other countries who won't be able to fill like live to their fullest extent because they're being repressed in such a way. It's just very heartbreaking. Mm. And I'm fortunate enough that at my um, age and my location, I've been able to pursue um, various forms of gender affirming care that have made my life um, so much more comfortable and and enjoyable. And I just, um, it truly pains me to hear about the discrimination and just the terrible ideas that are coming forward with no scientific basis. So, yeah.
6: Thank you for that. Thank you for that.
3: Yeah. Henry. Thank you. Henry, in all
6: three of those calls, anything that jumped out to you that you want to comment on?
4: Yeah, I really um, appreciate the point being brought up about uh, the overturn of Roe v. Wade because just like how we saw a balloon and abortion appointments needing to be made in places like California, Oregon, because... um, So that option was taken away in states like Tennessee, for example. Um, It's kind of the same way with gender-affirming care, right? Because it's being restricted in so many areas, it will require people to go out of state to receive their care. So this will have that echo effect that you mentioned of having an impact on basically everyone, right? Because it will make it to where it's harder to get appointments, not just for people in these states where it's banned, but for people in states where it's not banned, where people have had to flee to. you know, I hear from families all the time that have fled to areas like Chicago or New York, uh, because in Tennessee we've restricted gender-affirming care and because we don't know what the future of that can look like for parents. You know, There was originally, or rather no, there was an amendment on the bill at one point that would have defined gender-affirming care as child abuse. Um, fortunately, it was taken away But who knows when that could come back again? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, this will kind of have that echo effect uh, where it will just ripple out to the entirety of the nation, it seems. Um, And as someone who received gender affirming care as a minor, uh, I was 17 when I received my first dose of testosterone here in Tennessee. Um, It's like safe to say that this saved my life as well. Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of people have said the same thing. You know, I was. unsuccessful in treating my mental health disorders until i was able to kind of build the foundation that testosterone set down for me because i was able to look in the mirror and see myself Mm -hmm. i could only then be able to see a future and try to work around being able to live into myself because i actually had a sense of self for once in my life you know um yeah So it's really heartbreaking to hear all of the people that are nervous or scared, Um, but it's also really important to be realistic about how this impacts the entirety of the nation. And as these continue to pass, it will just make it worse and worse for all of us, not just some of us.
6: Uh, in, in about a minute, we have to take a break. But earlier in the show, when I was talking to Amara Jones about the history of this, uh, of, of this movement, and we talked about social contagion, uh, how, that idea, how often was that part of the debate in passing the bill in, in Tennessee?
4: Quite often um, it was that in tandem with uh, what we called comorbidities, quote unquote. So it would be trans people have autism or depression or anxiety that will inhibit their ability to kind of discern a sense of self when we know that that is just inherently incorrect and that this kind of idea of rapid onset Gender dysphoria, which is a phrase that I've heard for this social contagion, is inherently false, right? But it is a huge talking point because it kind of strikes into that fear. It taps into that fear of being like, you know, it's not just these children who live in these big cities. It can be your child and your conservative family too. Yeah.
6: We gotta take a break. I'm talking with Henry Seaton, trans justice advocate for the ACLU of Tennessee. When we come back, Mara Jones of Translash Media will rejoin our conversation. We'll talk about the road forward, and we will take more of your calls. So stay with us.
2: I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour.
6: It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. We're talking about the surge in bills targeting transgender people moving through state legislatures around the country. And we're still taking your calls if you or your family member has been affected by this kind of legislation in your state or if you've been affected by just this broader political moment. I am still joined by Henry Seaton, who is the trans justice advocate of the ACLU of Tennessee, which has become the most recent state to ban or limit access to gender-affirming care for minors. And Amara Jones is also back with us. Her podcast, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, is just about to launch its second season. It's produced by Translash Media, which Amara founded. And Amara, one of the things I do want to say that I really enjoy about Translash is that so much of the work you do is rooted in the joy and celebration of trans communities. And I do want to bring that into this conversation because it, it, it seems to me we are also in a remarkable moment in which the trans community has, you know, asserted, if you will, we're here, we're trans, get used to it. Oh, I think Amara's mo- muted.
1: Oh, no, there we go. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I think that, The fascinating thing is that both things are happening at the same time. It very much reminds me, someone else mentioned this to me, um, that it very much reminds him of the um, time of the Harlem Renaissance, where, Mm. you know, you have, like, extreme oppression and you have extreme creativity that um, rippled out for generations and continues to. And I really do think that that's akin to what's happening in trans communities, especially Black trans communities. I mean, the sheer... Um, range of creativity and places that trans people are showing up right now is really powerful in the way that trans people are advancing um, culture and science um, and very ideas about community I think are going to ripple out for a really long time and so any trans hate machine is a really important part of our work but as you say the vast amount of our work actually is about lifting up all of those other stories that are going on in our in in our community. And so both are happening at the same time.
6: Henry, are you seeing that in Tennessee as well? I mean, and if so, how is it visible to to you there?
1: Yeah, definitely.
4: Um, I think, uh, one of the things I wanted to kind of highlight is just, I mean, wow, that was just like so on point. It's kind of hard to like (laughs) (laughs) say, um, well, I need to. Well, if I could it. prod
6: you, what one thing that I know, that I've heard you say in the past uh, is that um, you know you've seen a real outpouring of people standing up to fight. Um, uh, that is an increase um, from 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 what you saw in the past as an organizer. It, it, is that fair to say?
4: Yeah, definitely. And I think um, in talking with other ACLU affiliates as well, um, a lot of other states are the same way, right? So this is kind of a national movement of people seeing what's happening and being really, really um, worked up by it. Because for me personally, this is not a legislative session that I've seen anything like uh, ever, really. Uh, This is kind of some of the most vile and hateful legislation that we do see year after year, but this time it has so much more momentum behind it because of how prominent this movement has become over time. Uh, But with that, uh, in tandem with that is like the queer community and Tennessee at least, and I know in a lot of other states as well from conversations that I've had, uh, is really showing up and showing out as a result. You know, because we, um, a lot of people are seeing how dangerous it is to be trans in Tennessee right now and be publicly trans and speak out for yourself, right? So allies have come up and decided to like bring their voices forward to protect the trans people and their lives. So we've also seen... Um, in tennessee uh, vanderbilt university's medical center has been under yeah, yeah. specific attack so because of those doctors um having their addresses pu- published online um and having to do only like telehealth services because of bomb threats at the vanderbilt campus um, a lot of people have come up to support those um and then with that uh financial contributions have also kind of skyrocketed here which is really great for our locally based organizations yeah, to do uh, their work
6: uh let's hear some for some more callers let's go to a in trenton new jersey a welcome to the show
8: thanks for having me um i'm really glad that you just brought up the idea of trans joy um i'm an adult that came into my non-binary trans identity late in life and it was literally the best thing i had ever heard um <laughs> It was a euphoric moment, reading the definitions of what it actually meant to be transgender and to be non-binary. And I very naively thought, like, everybody would be equally as happy um, and euphoric about this idea of gender identity being more diverse um, and being more comfortable to somebody that did not fit the binary. So it's very bewildering and strange um, to have this increasingly polarizing rhetoric really demonize the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I really worry about trans youth Mm. um, who are kind of the first generation to be able to have all this wonderful visibility and the ability to really understand who they are at a young age and not waste um, a huge chunk of their life not understanding themselves and how people are perceiving them. And then also I worry about our, our trans elders who also are now feeling comfortable coming out and understanding themselves after so many decades um, being perceived incorrectly and thinking about going into assisted living or being dependent on family members who may not understand who they are. Um, so it's like this very weird disconnect between the joy and happiness that I feel,
3: yeah.
8: um, understanding myself and knowing that other trans and gender nonconforming people can finally like see themselves and be seen. But then also in sharing their stories um, in this time of visibility with the lack of understanding from cisgender people. Um, you know, having to kind of tiptoe around and not knowing like when and where they can celebrate themselves and celebrate with each other. Um, Yeah. So it's very strange. It's a strange time.
6: Thank you for adding that. A, And it really underlines Amara's point about that. There's two things happening at the same time. uh, And it's very difficult uh, to process that for a lot of us. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's go to Elle in northern Minnesota. Elle, welcome to the show.
2: Hi. um, Thank you the big thing that these new laws really highlight is that, you know, these feelings towards trans people, I mean, they have always been underlying, I think, for a good, for a good amount of the population. But I also think that in the current day, there is such a magnification of it almost mm. in that you have a minority of people. I do believe it's a majority of people who don't accept, you know, me and other trans people in this country, but who are speaking so loudly that they are actually starting to have an impact. And it's, it's to an extent that these laws are being passed, obviously, but it's also to an extent that I think it is definitely scaring some people. Mm. Um, which obviously, yes, that is the intent, but a lot of people will point to like survivor bias and things as why so many trans people are coming out now because they see it as safer than in the previous times, you know, even 10 years ago, it was dramatically less safe to come out than it is now, but I'm worried that so many people who are, you know, won't understand who they are and won't discover who they are because they won't even think it's possible just because of all these laws and all of this rhetoric.
6: Can I, can I ask People you, just, Elle, I, I, I gather um, you mentioned to uh, our producer that you spoke to th- that you have not come out to your family as trans and I wonder how this moment shapes that well, choice for you.
2: Well, I didn't exactly not come out to my family. What I said was I'm not out publicly. Gotcha. Um, my family is very supportive. Unfortunately, despite the fact that I live in Minnesota, a state which I am extremely proud of for its legalization and protection of queer rights, you know, I live in a community that is unfortunately not nearly as much of a liberal baskin as the Twin Cities. And I hear things. You know, obviously, I live in a pretty small town, so it's not representative of the whole population. You know, it's a farming town. But you hear things, and you feel, feel dramatically less safe because you know how people really feel about that. Obviously, if you're out and about, you know, there's the whole Minnesota nice thing. You, We don't tend to tell people, you know, if we don't approve of what they're doing, but when they don't know, they, they, say, they feel comfortable well enough to say things. And that inherently makes me feel less safe. Yeah, yeah.
6: Thank you for sharing that, Elle. I really appreciate it. Um, and Amara, I want to pick up on something Elle said about there's a minority of people who are really loud. Um, and... Um, a lot of the work you are doing in the anti-trans hate machine is documenting how they got so loud <laughs> um and you know what is the structure behind that so I just kind of want to hear you react to that point and um and and what is what is the megaphone um that that is making that if l is correct that this is a minority of people who support this kind of legislation what is the megaphone for them
1: um right I mean I- I would say that there are a minority of people who are loud, but I think that there is a sizable minority, perhaps you have a majority of people who are unsure about trans people, who, what, what I call, are, call soft transphobia. Um, and I think that what happens is that through the entire infrastructure they built, the hope is to convert as many of those people who are soft transphobes into being active transphobes so i think that we have to realize that we live in a transphobic society transphobia is the default in the country and so it's all about how we're responding responding to changing answering transphobia that is really powerful here, and the right has done a lot of research over the years to try to figure out how to do that. Um I think that what we have to understand is that there's an entire infrastructure. I mean, I think that one of the things that we did in season one was to detail um, the state organizations, the national organizations, the billionaires, um, the think tanks, the religious ideology, the the religious institutions, um, and the politicians that are all working in concert to drive these bills. It is an entire infrastructure that we have to understand it. And you under you know that it's an infrastructure because somehow they have managed to make a group of people who are one and a half percent of the population into one of the top three points of discussion of political life in America, and you don't get there by accident. That shows you how powerful they are. And I think what we're doing this season is talking about how parallel to that, they've built an entire disinformation ecosystem that has found its way not only into um, right-wing and Christian nationalist media, which we would expect, but also into the broader media mainstream. And so one of the things that the right understands is that because they have minority views that they have to try to build majoritarian structures that will allow those views to become um, the 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 default position in political life and that's what we have to understand that there's nothing that's accidental about this conversation and that i know that for me the more that i understand about how the right wing works and how they have they have put this conversation at the center of national life the more alarmed i become
6: I want to sneak in one more call. We're getting short on time, but I've really enjoyed hearing from our listeners on this. Um, Deb in Minneapolis. Deb, welcome to the show.
9: Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for taking my call. I have two things to say really quickly. First of all, uh, my ex is trans. I have two kids who are trans. I am an educator. I am also an activist. And 30 years ago, I was a conservative right-wing Christian. I obviously am not anymore, but I have lots of connections in the religious communities, and I am putting it out there all the time that the things that they are hearing from people who are trying to make these laws are not true, and that trans people are not a danger. And second, even though I live in Minnesota, thank God for that, uh, and we have laws that protect the trans community, it only takes one election cycle to tip the balance. So I... uh, Advocate all the time for get out and vote, get out and let people know that there is nothing to fear from the trans community because so many of the religious people on the religious right, uh, they operate from a place of fear and ignorance.
6: Thank you for that, Dub. As we're starting to wrap up here, uh, we've got a few minutes left, but I I kind of Henry, I would put to you, what is the big fear? Right, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are sort of on the sidelines of this conversation, um, as uh, Amar referred to the to the soft transphobes. I think there might also be some soft trans allies, you know, that are like, "Well, what's the big deal? Why is everybody afraid? I don't have anything to worry about." In in your life, what what is in your experience? What do you, is it that you believe that is that has triggered people so who literally don't want trans kids in Tennessee to exist?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. I think about it every day. And if I had like the best solution ever, I would definitely say it. But Mm -hmm. I think um, it's kind of... It's something that's been built upon like generation after generation, right? Like uh, Amara has already discussed, but I think it even goes back further Um, because Tennessee has always been kind of this like reactive state where they don't think something is a problem until they hear it introduced to them as a problem. And then they know it's a problem, if that makes sense. So people don't know to think that gender affirming care is a problem until it gets introduced to them that way. And then it becomes something that they become really passionate about. You know what I mean? This is something that goes back, you know, Tennessee being um, a former Confederate state, a former segregationist state. It already starts with this like fear of exposure to people of color, specifically black and brown people, you know, Um, and just like progresses itself over time, you know, Uh, in the early 2000s it becomes exposure to gay men. Um, And now we're being exposed to trans people, even though we know this exposure does not hurt anyone, right? Um, Exposure doesn't mean harm. Uh, Exposure just means like having an experience that someone is hesitant to have. Um, This is just something that keeps piling on over and over again. Um, And in this kind of go around, it's the trans community, you know? Um, so I would say it's really hard to say what the specific fear about trans people is because you have to look back, like, centuries to see how this is just all kind of built upon itself from a really, like, former slave state, former segregation state, and now it just continues forward.
6: Amara, as a a great communicator, can you give me 10 seconds on what, what is the real fear here?
1: The real fear here is of change, Well, I mean, there it is. The real fear here is change. And in a time when the majority of America has a lot of fears about change, here's another thing to be afraid of.
6: Amara Jones is CEO of Translash and host of the podcast, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality, season two is about to launch. Henry Seaton is the trans justice advocate of ACLU Tennessee. Thank you to you both. And thank you to all of our listeners who chimed in for this conversation. I appreciate your honesty and your contribution. If we didn't get to your call, you can always reach us at notesforamerica.org. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcast, and on Instagram at Notes Kai. Theme music and mixing by Jared Paul. Milton Ruiz was our live engineer this week. Reporting, editing, and producing by Karen Froman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehier, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for hanging out.
0: You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.